The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is God's word. We're nearing the end of our series uh, called Dining with the King. And we've been saying that meals in the Old Testament specifically, um, they, they're significant. Uh, today's passage is about the Passover. And it's one of the three mandated meals in all of ancient Hebrew history. And this passage is really going to explain to us why it's such a... It was one of the three feasts that was mandated in celebration and observance by the Israelites. Now, here's the context. Moses was sent by God, and he goes to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And God tells him to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. And Pharaoh, he's the most powerful man in the world. He is the most powerful man in the world to date. And he asks a very fair question. Why should I? Why? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's what he asks. And it's not because he's an atheist, but Pharaoh's got his own gods. The Egyptians have their own gods. I have my gods. You have your gods. Why should I have to obey your God? What is so unique about your God? And so as an answer, God sends nine of the ten plagues. That was God's response. But really, there's no better answer to that question than this passage because for the Jews, the Passover meal... And really, for Christians, the revised version of the Passover meal is the Lord's Supper, our communion. It's the central act of the identity of God's people. It's the central act of the identity of God's people in their worship. And it tells us a lot about the character of God, which is really what this series is about. The Pharaoh asks, what makes your God so special? And the answer is here. At the center, God is so wise, so mighty, and yet so gracious and loving that he became weak, that he became helpless, that he died, and he became a sacrifice. Why? There are three reasons, three points. What is the sacrifice? Why is it important? And how do we apply it? What is the sacrifice? It's a lamb. 
Why is it important? That's the history. And lastly, how do we apply it? That's the application. First, what it is. What is this? Sacrifice. It's a lamb. God calls Pharaoh, and this is a greater king calling on a lesser king. God, the greater king, calling on a lesser king, and he says, I want you to set my people free. I want you to let them go. This is a higher king calling on a lesser king. In those days, in those ancient times, if the lesser king doesn't pay tribute to the higher king, it was considered an act of treason. It was considered an act of betrayal. It was considered an act of war. And so the Pharaoh refuses, and the plagues come. The waves of God's wrath come. This is the last of the plagues. What is it? Verse 12. God says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn. In your Bibles, if you look at verse 23, Moses is speaking to Israel about the Passover, and he says, The Lord will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses or strike you down. It's going to be a temporary, you know, when God says that night a destroyer is going to come. He's saying on one night, in one place, justice is coming. One night, one place, justice will come. My justice is going to come. It's going to be a temporary justice. It's going to be a preliminary justice. It's going to be a provisional justice for you and your people. But it's going to be devastating. Everyone's going to get wiped out. I am about to unleash the most unstoppable force in the universe. Just a glimpse of my power, I will unleash it. The destroyer is going to come. It's going to pass through the greatest military, like a knife cutting through, hot knife cutting through butter. It's going to pass right through the most powerful political power in the world that's ever, been, that's ever existed to date. And I'm going to pass through with ease. No one's going to stop me without any resistance at my will. But the only thing that's going to protect you is a lamb. Now what? The only thing that's going to protect you is a lamb? God says in verses 1 to 13, you see all these instructions, these elaborate instructions of preparing the meal, how you're going to dress for the meal, how you're going to eat the meal. He says you have to eat it in haste. Even the rate and the pace at which you're going to eat this meal. He's elaborate instructions. He says, I want you to kill this lamb. I want you to eat with your family. I want you to wear certain types of clothing. It's going to be tucked a certain way. I want you to hold your staff in your hand. I want you to put the blood on the doorposts. And I want you to, here's how you eat it. Here's how you're going to dispose of it. You're going to dispose of it properly. That's the passage. That's the Passover. Now, if you think about it, God is saying, what is he saying here inherently? Your strength, your intelligence, your power, your wealth, I don't care how culturally advanced you are, it will not stop this destroyer from coming. The only way that you can be saved is through a weak, insignificant, cute little lamb. Now, as a postmoderner, if you're a postmoderner, you're sitting there thinking about that, that's almost insulting. To think that all of your talent, all the work that you've put into building yourself up, that it, has, it bears no weight on salvation. That's almost insulting. So why is it important? That's the second point. You need to understand the greater biblical context of this lamb. So I'm going to tell you the background story of this. First, in Genesis chapter 22, you're going to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. In chapter 22 of Genesis, you have Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham loves Isaac. Abraham dotes on Isaac. It's his only son. It's his only true son in a sense. This is the son of promise. But in Genesis chapter 22, God, who promised to redeem his people through his son, through Abraham's son, he says to him, I want you to offer up your son as a sacrifice. Offer him up. 
Abraham is devastated. Abraham is in anguish. Why? Why is he, first of all, why is he in anguish? Most people, even brilliant liberal scholars today, liberal scholars, whether you're conservative or liberal, they're going to say, what a horrible God. A lot of them will say this. This is, a, this is an angry God. This is a horrible God that's going to command this type of command to somebody he says he loves. He's going to take away the things that you love the most. What a horrible God. And the answer is, no way. Absolutely not. Because Abraham understood. That's why there was no resistance. If you believe what the liberal scholars believe, even some you know, professional scholars out there, you don't really know Abraham's story and you don't understand his context. So I'm going to tell you the context. Ancient cultures, they didn't pursue individual degrees. They didn't pursue individual status. They didn't pursue prosperity from an individual standpoint the way we do today. They didn't pursue success the way we pursue success today. The way they worked, they worked hard to advance their family. They worked hard to advance their tribe. It was a community thing. To see one person as an individual succeed was actually, it was non-existent in their culture. Everybody worked and contributed and poured into the advancement of their culture or family or clan or tribe, their household. That's the context. If a member of the family failed, they acted shamefully. The crime, the entire family was shamed. It, the entire family was embarrassed. So that's why everybody, it was the, it, they say that even in today's culture, they say, in certain cultures, if you were to commit a violent crime, you are more likely to be turned in by your family members before the police actually catch you. There are certain cultures even today that's, that are like that. that. Why? It's because that person's shame transfers over to the whole family. And in order to prevent that, the family was very, very tight. The shame was imputed, so to speak, to everybody. Now, we don't see it that way at first. We say, if a member of my family acts shamefully, that's on them. Why should that be on me? I shouldn't be responsible for somebody else's flaws. It's too much to manage. I mean, I, I really shouldn't be responsible for that. It's easy to say that when you're young. But as you get older, one of the things that you, that's really startling, one of the things that you start to realize, and it's almost disturbing, is you are much more a product of the influence of your community or your family than you first thought. Some of you may already agree. You are much more a product of the influence of your community or your family than you first thought. Who you are, what you do, whether it's good or bad, it's not attributable completely to you. That's, what, that's really what I'm trying to say. First of all, look at your genes. Look at your looks. Look at your intelligence. We have a lot of beautiful, intelligent people here in this room. You didn't earn any of that. You didn't work for any of that. Most of your intelligence, whether you want to believe it or not, is inherited. Your looks are inherited. Think about your privilege. Second, think about your privilege or lack of privilege. None of that was something that you were, you know, you, you earned. Your privileges, you were born into. It's a product of your family, right? Now, you are responsible for all of your actions. You are responsible for every response. But if you think about it, much can be attributed to your family. What you did and didn't do, what they did and didn't do with you for that matter, right? Now, if you don't agree, think about Sandy Hook, the great Sandy Hook tragedy that took place in Connecticut. All the news and all the journalism, right, all the, all the experts, what do they focus on? They first start out by talking about the child's, the person's family, their upbringing, his background. 
After Columbine, which really was highlighted as the first of the great incidents and tragedies in public schools, in these school systems, what did the newspaper uh, pundits, what did the pundits, the magazines, what did they all focus on? The background of these children, the background of these youth, the families. Because what they said was there's a responsibility. It's either active for what they did or passive for their neglect and for their ignorance. But everybody else felt that way. And that's how people, that's how people responded. We, have a, we in this culture, we have an unbalanced view of the influence of family and our culture on each individual. Now, ancient culture is much more balanced. Much more balanced view of family. Much more balanced view of community. Much more balanced uh, uh, value uh, balanced value uh, uh, view uh, towards these things. The individual responsibility and family, they're much more balanced. They valued their firstborn. They, they didn't have banks back then. So all of the family wealth, because it was a community thing, was centralized on one person. It was the eldest son. The wealth was centralized around the firstborn son. He bore, he bore responsibility, basically, because there were no banks. He bore the responsibility to distribute that wealth throughout the, the members of his family. And so God is sending this message throughout the Old Testament. Every firstborn child belongs to me unless you redeem it. Unless he is redeemed. Every firstborn belongs to me. That means all the wealth of this land. That means all the status, all the power, all the responsibility centralized on the firstborn child belongs to me. And one day I will come to redeem. One day I will call it back. One day I will come to collect all my debts. So you have to put up a certain amount. And the redemption price of the first, there was a redemption price basically on the firstborn of every family. He was the redemption price. The firstborn, because all the wealth and all the status and all the power was centralized in that firstborn child, he was the one to pay the price for the whole family. And if you lived a long and prosperous life, God has blessed you with a tremendous amount of grace. All your hopes, all your success, all the wealth concentrated on this child. And God is saying, basically, there is a debt over every family on the face of the earth. It's called a sin debt. And the firstborn represents all the wealth and therefore also represents all the responsibility in the sin. You are liable. He is liable for the lives that you are living. All the wealth is concentrated on the firstborn, but all the sin as well, unless he is redeemed because one day I will come to call in my debt. So when God says to Abraham, I want you to offer up your firstborn child, Abraham totally understood because what he understands this to be is God coming now to call in his debt. It is now time. God is not asking Abraham, I want you to just kill your son because if he, you know, if he did it, Abraham would say, that doesn't make sense. You are a just God and you are a good God and you call us not to murder. That is not what God was asking Abraham to do, but he was saying, I am now calling in my debt. I want you to sacrifice your son. That's what he says. It was the right, it was his right. Isaac had to die for his family and for God's redemption to proceed through the life of Abraham. That's how he understood it. Abraham's sins, for, for that matter, had to be died for. But Abraham's struggling and he's anguishing because this is his firstborn son. He doted on his son. He had waited for decades for this child. He loved on him. This was supposed to be the son of promise, but now he's starting to get that maybe the promise is going to come through this child's death. And so he makes this long journey up on the mountain to sacrifice his son. 
never question God. You never see any written account of Abraham questioning God. Now, what he would have struggled with at the same time, he's trying to work this out. It was a very long journey up the mountain. What he's struggling with is, on one hand, God says he's promising by grace to redeem the world through Isaac. So now he's thinking, okay, so if he's going to redeem the world through Isaac, then Isaac must be the representative of the entire world that God knows, that God has chosen to love. So this sacrifice satisfies God's justice. That part makes sense to Abraham. But how does this sacrifice satisfy God's grace? This was Abraham's struggle. I get that God is just, and I get that, Abra- that Isaac must be sacrificed. That will satisfy his justice. The sin debt will be paid. But how does that make God a gracious God? This was a struggle. All the way up until verses 7 and 8 in chapter, Genesis 22, Isaac, can you imagine the anguish? Isaac is actually quite older. He's not this little child running around. He's actually quite old. And he talks to Abraham and he says, I see the wood, I see the fire, I see the knife. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Abraham says, God's going to provide the lamb. If God is just, you're going to be sacrificed for the world. But I'm going to hope that God's going to provide a lamb so that my little lamb won't die. I'm, gonna, I'm looking for the grace of God. Yes, if, if you must be sacrificed, then you're the lamb. But I'm trusting that there will be a lamb and that, so that my lamb won't die. Now, people have all sorts of problems with this notion that we owe a debt of sin, that the wrath of God is on us. That sounds very arcane, almost primitive, right? So I'm going to unpack this a little bit, and we're all going to understand, we're all going to come to an agreement. We say, gosh, it's so extreme to say that every person has this sin debt. Why can't God just forgive everybody? And the answer is this. It's impossible. It's even impossible for you unless there is a payment. Now think about this. The Bible says we were created in God's image. We have to start with this. We were created in God's image. So when someone seriously wrongs you, how do you feel? You feel cosmically they owe you a debt. There is this gap, this distancing that takes place when somebody sins against you. When somebody wrongs you, betrays you, even if it's a slight, like a slight comment, and you're, you're like irritated by that, what happens is inherently a gap exists. It may be a small, small gap depending on the proportion of the sin, a small gap, or it could be a very, very wide gap depending on the betrayal. Almost, you know, unfillable, Right? There are some friendships where the betrayal is so great that it is impossible to, bring, to reconcile the gap. We all understand that. When you are wronged, there is this distancing that takes place. And unless there is a payment for that distancing, the gap will never be closed. Even if it's something small, we don't let these things go. You have two options when someone wrongs you. Either A, you will pay them back, right? You will pay them back, and then you feel good, they are damaged, the damage is somewhat proportional, somewhat proportional. We always want to inflict more damage, that's the problem. But there's somewhat proportional damage that's collateral as well. There's also collateral damage, but there's somewhat proportional damage that's inflicted on this person, and you feel better. And the gap starts to close. Or, right, there's another version of this, is you may withdraw from that person because that also inflicts pain and damage on the person, right? And when you do that, then you say, you know, I'm not going to talk to this person. I'm going to gossip about this person behind their back. And what you're doing is you're damaging that person ultimately. And what happens is they're, they're paying back the debt. Or, you know, there's another version of that, 
right? They come to you and they say, what can I do? What can I do to make this up to you? And you say, okay, fine. You know, I'll forgive you, but now, from now on, you will not do this and this and this and this and this. And they have to make, and they slowly work their way back to closing the gap. That's one way of handling this debt. The other way of handling the debt is to say, you know what? I'm going to forgive you. Completely, utterly. But how does the gap close? You know how that gap closes? You end up paying the debt. You sit there and you have to work out. Every single time you want to hurt that person, you swallow that pain. Every single time you want to gossip about the person, you keep your mouth shut. And you hear all these people, it's the worst thing because you hear all these people around them say, oh, that person's such a great person. And you want to just bring something out and you want to tell them and you want to say, well, guess what? I know something about this person. You know, and you know it's going to refresh you to know that that person is being damaged. But you swallow that. Right? So you can either retaliate or have that person pay back the debt or you can pay the debt back yourself and forgive utterly, completely. Now, if you go the first way, and there's many versions of that first way, we all agree, right? If you go the first way, you feel good for a moment, but what happens is after a while, there's an anger and a bitterness that starts to come in and corrode your soul. And what happens is after a while, after years and years of damaging that person, after years and years of being unrelenting, unforgiving, after years and years of gossiping, and your soul starts to get twisted, and what happens is after a while, you become corrupted completely. You become irreparably damaged. But on the other hand, if you forgive, in the beginning there's pain and anguish, but after a while, if you truly forgive, that anger and the bitterness dies out. And you become more compassionate. You become more empathic. You start to be soulful in your relationships with people. Those are the two ways that we handle it. And it's because at some point, we would all agree now that whenever there's a sin, whenever there's a wrong, there is absolutely a debt that must be paid. Now, that conclusion, you know, doesn't just go between two people. You can take that on a societal level. You know, postmodern, for instance, if you go the route of just not forgiving, if you go the route of just having the people pay back, you know, and think about it. I, I don't want to trivialize this, but... Let's talk about serious damage here, right? If somebody rapes or murders your child, would you be satisfied at this point if the judge says, listen, okay, I understand your child is murdered, but he feels really bad. I mean, he's pretty sorry. I mean, you can tell he's sorry. He's crying. His whole family's crying, right? Let's let him go. You know, we're all good people here. Let's all let him go. Would you feel satisfied by that? If that is how we are on an individual, physical, emotional level, how much greater would it be? How much greater the chasm and the distance between us and a God who created us and has felt betrayed by his people, the people that he loves on, a people that he dotes on, a people he says, you are my image. How much greater that debt? how much greater that distance, how much greater the payment. It is irreconcilable. It is absolutely irreconcilable. You can take this on many levels. You know, because postmodern philosophers will tell you, they're going to tell you that, you know, if you let some, if you let, first of all, if you let a person go, the damage to that child who's been trampled on will persist. 
and evil wins. If God even lets one sin go, evil wins. So what God is saying is one day I'm going to come to call in my debt so that not a single debt will be left unpaid. That's a lot of debt. That's a lot of tragedies. Over history, over the course of human history, that's a great distance. Abraham knows Isaac must be sacrificed. But at the last minute, just as he is about to slaughter his son, God says, stop, do not sacrifice Isaac. But in Genesis chapter 22, there's no lamb. Instead, there's a ram that gets caught in the thicket. It's not a, it's not a lamb. There's a ram that's caught in the thicket. He's sacrificed. That lamb is sacrificed. It's kind of a substitute for the lamb. It's kind of a provision in the place of the lamb. You see where I'm going with this? Now you fast forward all the way to Moses. God says, tonight I will call my debts in, at least temporarily. In this context, in this time, in this era, I'm calling my debts in. It's a picture of what is to come. Every firstborn will die because the firstborn represents the centralization of all the wealth and status and power. If you think about the sum of your identity, it's concentrated in that firstborn. You take the sum of everybody in a particular family and all of their status and pedigree and wealth and power and title, and you concentrate that into one person. He says, I'm calling my debts in, and he will pay for it. That's what's going on. Tonight I'm calling my debts in. The firstborn will die. What's your hope? Your hope is a lamb. Now I will provide you with a substitute. Abraham only got a shadow of it. He got a ram. We get a lamb, he says. Now, it's very clear in this text, verse 22, chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, God says to the Israelites, after you put the blood on the door, not a single person shall go out of his house. Why? He's saying the destroyer, this destroyer that is coming, he's not just coming for the Egyptians. Yes, Israelites are oppressed. Yes, they are worshipers of God. But yes, and yes, God sees their misery. God sees their oppression. But based on God's law, based on God's design, the Israelites are no better than the Egyptians. He says, I don't want you, any of you, there will be a curfew tonight. Not a single person will leave their house once the blood is on the doorposts because all of you deserve to die. You see what that means? It doesn't depend on your goodness. It doesn't depend on your skill or your talent or how well you've been brought up. It doesn't matter even when you're at your best. You know, uh, during, in the word of encouragement, the apostle Paul writes, uh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me? Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's what he says. This is Paul at his spiritual peak. This is not when he's low and feeling guilty and groveling because of his shame. This is Paul in prison, in chains because of the gospel, at a spiritual peak, one of the later books in his life. And he's saying, at my spiritual peak, I'm telling you, I've realized, I've concluded, I am a wretched person to the death who will save me. But then he says, thanks be to God. God is gracious. That's what he says. God is gracious. We all deserve to die. You see what that means? It doesn't depend. Paul was a brilliant man. Paul was a faithful man. Paul is listed by Time Magazine as one of the top five most influential characters in world history. And he says, at his peak, I deserve to die. Who will save me? Who will rescue me? You cannot base it on your moral record. You cannot base it on the fact that you are a good son or a good daughter or you're doing things because you're a good son or a good daughter. You cannot base it because you feel like you have racial superiority. You cannot say this because you feel like you've been in misery or you feel oppressed. You cannot base it on the fact that you have a good pedigree or good doctrine. None of these things will help you. What's your hope? In every house, something had to die that night. 
Either a lamb will die or your child will die. Something will pay that night. Either a son gets what you deserve or the lamb gets what you deserve. The lamb is a substitute. That's what that means. At dinner that night, the head of the house sits with a staff in his hand. He sees the lamb and he says, the only reason why I'm not consumed is because this lamb is being consumed. The only reason why my blood will not be spilt tonight or my son's blood, the, the focus of all of my identity, is not spilt tonight is because this lamb's blood has been spilt. And yet even that was temporary. Even that is provisional. God is saying, even though I will, I'm delivering you tonight, you still owe me a debt of sin. You need, for you all need a greater rescue than me, than this, than tonight. You need another rescue. You need another lamb. You need a greater lamb because your debt is big. Your debt is just as big, if not bigger. Your problem is greater. You are in greater oppression than what I'm about to free you from because it's a spiritual oppression. Now, these Old Testament laws, if you read through the boring books of the Old Testament, you have Exodus. After you finish the second half, nobody reads this 15 and on. You know, people have a hard time with chapter 15 and Exodus and on. But after chapter 15 and Exodus through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you see laws after law after law after law. And a lot of the laws you see around the substitution, the substitutionary aspect of the lamb and the goat. The lamb is sacrificed at the Passover meal and on the day of atonement, you have the high priest one time a year. He calls on two goats. One is going to be sacrificed for the sins of the people, but the other, he places his hand on the head of the goat, which is basically saying, I'm transferring all the sins of the people and I'm placing it on this goat and he casts him out. Thus, we get the term scapegoat because he will take the blame for all of our sins. And this goat is sent out of the city and the gates are closed. It's a very dramatic thing. He's sent out into the wilderness to die. He will have no protection. As a domesticated goat, he will have no protection. He will die. He will die in the wilderness. He is gone. We will not know him any longer. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist, on his first seeing of Jesus Christ, he proclaims, behold, this is the Lamb of God, the Lamb to be sacrificed, who takes away the sins of the world. He is the scapegoat. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist, seeing Jesus, he proclaims, this is the Lamb and the scapegoat. The lamb and the scapegoat, I realize now by seeing Jesus, is just a provision. It's just something that's temporary, a representation. But now I behold the true lamb that will be sacrificed, the true goat that will be cast out. John the Baptist, encountering Christ, got it. Do you get it? Do you understand? John the Baptist got it. Centuries later, Jesus Christ, on the night in which he is betrayed, he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. Now, it's customary for the head person to deliver all the instructions. They're told you have to deliver a certain set of instructions, a reminder. It's like a teaching, a devotion about the Passover meal. And you are to use Exodus as a guide. But when Jesus stands to deliver this message, two things that he does completely would have shocked the people around him, his disciples. First, they would have expected him to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we can be free. But that's not actually what he says. He doesn't say that at all. You read it in your call to worship. This is what he says. He says, this bread is my body, the bread of my affliction. 
This is my affliction that I'm going to suffer for your sins. Not just from physical or political or economic bondage, but from sin and death. That's what he says. Now, what? They're saying, what? They're kind of murmuring to each other. Why is he saying it like this? Now, the second thing happens, there's a table, right? They're sitting around a table. And there are three things that exist at this Passover meal that are absolutely important. First, you've got the unleavened bread, right? This is my body. You know, he says this. You have the unleavened bread. You have the wine. You're supposed to drink wine. The wine commemorates Jesus' blood spilt. So here's the bread. He says, here's, this is my bread. He says, here's the wine. He starts pouring the wine. But the centerpiece of the meal is missing. They were supposed to eat a lamb. There is no lamb at this dinner table. There is just bread and wine. Where is the centerpiece? What kind of Passover meal is this? You can't have a meal. You can't have a Passover meal without a lamb. But the disciples missed it because the lamb was at the table. The true lamb was at the table. What Jesus did was he took away the representative lamb and he presented himself. Because what he's saying is this, beginning tonight, for you, I am the real lamb. My death will be the centerpiece. My sacrifice will be will be the centerpiece to which all now makes all the Bible make sense because all the Bible points to this centerpiece. It is such a centerpiece. Tonight I'm giving you the ultimate salvation that even Moses was pointing to. I will remove your sin debt once and for all. I will take it away for real. You have to take me in. You have to see me broken apart. You have to see me consumed and you have to take it in. You have to digest it. You have to eat it. And that's why he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Every time you take that bread, I want you to remember this lamb for you. Every time you take this wine, I want you to remember my blood spilt to take away your sin debt once and for all. I want you to take it in. You literally have to digest it because when you digest something, it starts to nourish you. With all the other things that you digest, I want you to take me in and see what it does to your body and to your soul. That's what he says. See me broken apart. Now, the last point, how do you apply that? What does it mean to take it in? Through Abraham, we see sin as a debt and that the provision is to come from God. But this ram that was caught in a thicket, the word thicket in Hebrew, right? This is just a very brief lesson in Hebrew. The word thicket here in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham's ram caught, that is the word eights, eights. It means wood. This ram is caught in the wood. But it's a very particular word because it's the same word that's used all through the Old Testament. Noah's building an ark. That ark, the wood that that ark is to be made of is the word eights. Jonah is standing before he preaches this horrible sermon and 120,000 people start to repent. And Jonah stands at this east corner, right, on a hill and he's looking down to see, will God be gracious or will God show his wrath and power? And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And during that time, this vine starts to grow behind him. The vine, he says, when he sees the vine, of course, the vine provided him shade physically. And he says, but Jonah was happy about that vine. You know why? Because that vine, the word vine means eights. In Deuteronomy, We can go on and on. There's so many examples of this. But in Deuteronomy, it reads, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That word tree is the word eights because that word is associated with judgment. 
So here's Jonah standing by. Will the wrath come or will the grace come? And he's waiting for the wrath and he's waiting for the wrath and he's waiting for the wrath and this vine grows around him and he says, yes, the wrath is going to come. And then what happens? This worm comes out and eats the entire vine overnight. And he says, I want to die. Why? Because he wanted the wrath and what he saw was the grace. That's what he saw. Noah is in this ark because that wood represents judgment. Everybody deserves to die. And so outside of that wood, everyone is dead. But if you're hidden in the wood, you are redeemed. Everyone else gets the wrath. But if you are in the wood, you are saved. See that? We can go on and on and on. It's all over the Old Testament. Here we are. Here's Jesus. Cursed is, everyone who, is anyone who is hang, hanged on a tree. The word is later used to refer to the cross. Because you see, the firstborns were not spared from sin because of some animal. They were spared because God sacrificed his firstborn. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the provision. Jesus is the scapegoat. Jesus was taken outside of the city. That's why he was crucified outside of the city. And the gates were closed because what he's saying is you are now forsaken from life. You are to die as a criminal, as one who is not even a part of these people. You are completely cast out. Isaiah 53 says he was cast out from the land of the living. He is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate salvation, the ultimate rescue. Now, God spared Abraham's son Isaac because when, Abraham, when God stopped Abraham, what he was really saying is, one day, Abraham, the reason why I'm stopping you is because one day I'm going to walk up that mountain. Calvary with my son. I will be there with my son. And I will walk him up that hill. And he will say, here is the wood. And I see the fire. And I am the lamb. That's what he's saying. And the wrath of God will pour out on him. And I will not say stop. I will leave him for dead. I will abandon him so that he will pay the debt. And I will collect that debt in full. 100% I will pay it in full. And here's Jesus on the cross. And the wrath of God is just pouring out on him. And he cries out and he says, my God, my God. This is the perfect, holy son of God on the cross saying, my God, my God. My blood is being spilt. My body is being ripped apart like bread. Why have you forsaken me? Because what he's saying is not only have I been cast out from the land of the living, I've been cast out by you completely forsaken and left for dead. That's what he's saying. My blood is being poured out and spilt. That's what he's saying for you. Do you know Jesus died? The lamb was supposed to be eaten at twilight. Jesus died at twilight. Do you know that? Even the timing as the high priest is doing his thing, right? The holy temporal curtain is being torn in two. The high priest is saying, what the, right? That's what he's saying, right? Meanwhile, Jesus is on the cross, The temple's being torn in two. Earthquake is rattling. Darkness comes over the land, right? And he is suffering and bleeding and dying. The perfect timing for the perfect sacrifice because the lamb is to be slain. John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. What that means is, when he says behold, you know what that means? Does that mean try harder? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying, I want you to work so that you can understand? Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying, look, Does it take any power? Does it take any strength? Do you need a title to look? Do you need to be wealthy to look? Can you be poor and just look? He says, behold, because everyone can behold. 
I want you to look to see this lamb that is to be slain. I want you to think about it. That's what it means to behold. I want you to reflect on it. That's what it means to be behold. I want you to own it. I want you to digest it. I want you to realize it. I want you to become amazed by it. I want you to grasp it and take it in. What do you behold? You see, what do you behold? It doesn't take work to see. You just see. You take it in. Every day we're looking at things and we're taking it in. If you're trying to behold, if you're saying, but I'm trying, I don't really see, then you don't see. You get it? It comes only through faith. Faith alone. By grace alone. Do you see that? How do you apply it? First, you have to own the truth that you wronged God and your neighbor and your debt must be paid and Jesus paid it. Do you take that in? That's what it means to start digesting it. That's the beginning of chewing on it and digesting it. Jesus didn't come to be a religious leader. He came to be a sacrifice. He didn't come to become a teacher, although he was a great teacher. He came to be your substitute. Listen, if you don't believe that Jesus had to die for you, you just believe in a God that's either all love or all wrath. You will never be able to reconcile the two. And you're not thinking. I want you to think about it. Behold, I want you to think about it. I want you to realize it. I want you to come to it and all of a sudden say, you know what, I've been growing up in the church and now I get it. After all these years, now I get it that this was for me. That's what it's about. Do you see that? Because there on the cross, I see God's love and there on the cross, I see God's wrath. And it is being poured out on Christ so that the love is poured out on me. Do you see that? That God is doting on you? That he's loving you? He's saying, you were worth it. You were worth every last drop of blood of my firstborn. The firstborn is the wealth. That means God that day became poor for you. The firstborn was title. That means God gave up his status that day for you so that you can have the status, so you can have his, what it means to be rich, to be utterly wealthy in him. By the way, that's why we pursue wealth so much. When you don't know the cross and we don't behold the cross, the wealth is enough for you. You're scrounging around for that every last drop and you're working and working and working and working and working. Every other, every other representation of Christ is flawed and will make you work for it. It will make you work very, very hard for it. You will sacrifice. You will be the one that will be slain. Jesus Christ says, stop the work. You cannot earn your way into God's favor. I've already done it. And I don't want you to pay the price because you can't either. So I've already done that too. Do you see the beauty of Christ? The love of Christ? His grace? Do you see that? What an amazing thing. God's firstborn paid the price of the sin debt. And so the cross assures us of two things. One, evil will be paid once and for all. There will not be one sin that will go unpaid. God is just, and he will come and collect. But two, it assures us, every time you look at the cross, you see your assurance that you are loved and embraced and doted on because of God's grace. This is the only kind of God. I don't know much of your contexts. This is a new church We've only been around for three years. Believe it or not, you probably, probably slipped by you guys. This is our third anniversary. This is our third anniversary today. We don't make a big deal out of it anymore because this, we're just working through God's. Other churches, may, I don't know, they have big celebrations. What was our first celebration? We had a toast, I think it was, together as a body. 
you know, because we survived. Really, that's only because we survived. We're like, you know, I, I, when I first, I'm going on a tangent here. When I first came here, I said, I just want to last six months. <laughs> that is, in my, then I can rest. I just, like, just help me last six months. You know, we are here. I don't know much of your context. A lot of new people here. A lot of new people every week. You may have grown up in the church, or maybe you haven't ever been to church. This is the same grace that's offered to all of us, and you have to take it in the same way. Ain't no amount of Bible studies that you've attended. If you haven't taken it in, you're just staring at great food, but you haven't taken it in. You haven't tasted it. I want you to taste it. Will you consume it and digest it? Take it in? Let's pray.